Hey, it's Greg. Welcome to the Toronto Today podcast. This is version number one of a brand new show with brand new people involved, brand new objectives. So um, it's going to take a while to feel quite right. And that might be to your discerning ears as well. But let me start today's podcast uh, by playing a segment where I explain what the goals for the show are, um, how the show ended up being created, how I came after a bunch of years at another place uh, to come back to Chorus, where I was the first three years I lived here and worked here in Toronto after coming from Michigan. It's been a series of long, strange trips. So let me lay all that out for you. And then we get to some heightened awareness of the Delta variant and immunity created by COVID acquisition. This was almost a fringe thought in March and April, the idea that you could be immune to COVID if you'd had it already. And maybe, just maybe, that would do more or at least serve as an equal to one dose of your preferred vaccine. Well, there's starting to become data that documents that and that that makes that true. Are we going to hear that from public health officials? You know and I know that we probably won't but it doesn't mean we can't talk about it when it is true. So Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, kind enough to join me, infectious diseases physician, to talk about that. We've got Merritt Stiles on the show. Uh, she and I talk about uh, education and the back to school. She's the NDP education critic. And uh, a little bit on the protests yesterday. Uh, Justin Trudeau in London having pebbles thrown at him. It's a significant moment in the campaign, and there's only two directions it can go. It can get worse. It can get better. So this is the Toronto Today podcast. Please tell all your friends about it. Please share it uh, where you get your podcasts. And we're ready to go. So the show is called Toronto Today. My name's Greg Brady. And uh, and this is what's going to happen from this point on. So I, I want I want to th- owe the listeners. I think I owe the listeners a bit of an explanation on a couple different fronts. And I want to talk about the evolution of the show. And it goes back quite a ways. Um how did I get here at 640 is something people ask me sometimes. And uh, I think you should know a lot more than you've known so far. And I think you should know how this show has evolved over the last couple months of, oh, patience, a lot of that, and planning, and, and a good chunk of that, and circumstance. And I think, you know, look, listen, you get credit for being here in the first place. So if you're here in the first place listening to me right now, you should get to know where this show is going to go and what the plans are and a, a mission statement. Sometimes in radio, we don't we don't... We don't treat the listener intelligently, right? We don't. We, we, we don't let them in on the ground floor. And there's only so much you can know. I don't know a lot about your workplace. There's things that happens with your workplace or your personal life that that just, that's fine. But this is a radio show. And so you invest. It's a unique relationship. It's a unique form of communication. When I have relationships with radio shows, I it's a relationship you don't have with a newspaper columnist or a, now a blog author. It's not a TV anchor. You can have your favorites of those, but radio is so, so different and unique. And when I grew up watching and listening to talk shows, the idea of this instant communication with someone who did what I'm, I'm so fortunate enough to do, um, it was unthinkable. So this is where it's at, and it has its, its good and bads, goods and bads. Um, and there's look, there's hard work involved in it. There's preparation. There's sacrifice. And far from just, just me doing that. Um, but you're hearing my voice now because being informed matters to you. We're going to entertain you. And there's something about the medium that works for you also. So how'd this happen? <laughs> you are asking yourself that, right? I am sometimes also. So let me start. 
I emailed a uh, gentleman named Jeff Story. He'd taken over as regional program director for Toronto, Hamilton, London. We'd never met. I knew of him. And until we got to meet face to face, I didn't know how much he knew of me. And you all know, some of you do. I worked at Chorus um, for a program director named Gord Harris on the Bill Waters show when uh, Chorus had the Maple Leafs rights. So I knew that I knew some of the people and the players involved, but a lot changes. Um, I went to work at Rogers for Sportsnet 590 The Fan in summer of 2010 and stayed there for nine, nine and a half years. But I sent Jeff that email in the middle of August of 2019. So we're talking about 24, 25 months ago. What did I want when I sent him an email? Um, and what was I feeling? Well, the Raptors had a, a big run to the NBA final. I just referenced that. And then I think I took some time off and I came back and, and something was different after the Raptors won. I wasn't as inspired as I used to be. And I, people who know me know that's really rare for me. Sometimes I can get too fired up, too inspired. And it was no one's fault of people I was working with, but the the mix was off. I had some great people working with me. I did. And um, there were two different iterations of a show, which um, I think it was safe to say I, I considered myself uh, the lead dog in those shows. Um, lucky enough to be put in that position. Um, but it, it wasn't it wasn't a fit. And they tried two different iterations of it, and neither was a fit. Like, I know, you know. Within two hours, I knew within two hours of a rehearsal back in February 2017 that something was was not going to work. And it took a touch longer the second time around, but then I realized it again. And I'm like, how many runs are we going to have at this? And it's not those people's faults. They did the best they could. They were placed in a, in a role in which they were not given a chance to succeed. I watched a guy named Elliot Price move his family from Montreal here, expecting the job to be something it was not. And I watched uh, his boss and my boss on the time give up on the guy after a few months. It was it was gross. So I'd have tons of talks with my wife at our kitchen table, often on Friday afternoons through February, March, and April of 2019. And we'd take some assessment of where it all was. And it, it came down to two big questions for me. She'd ask me and, and I'd ask myself. These are the two questions. Are you doing what you want to be doing and with people that care about it like you do? And the second question was, are you being given the best chance to succeed at what you do best by those above you? And I've had so many amazing opportunities to do those things. And, and those answers were often hell yes and hell yes. And this time around, they were no and absolutely 100% not. It's great to finally get to tell the truth about that. Um, I was going through things at that gig that honestly, I, I wouldn't wish on anybody else in this business. And uh, I'm still coming to terms with, and I wish I'd stood up more to fight for myself. Um, and for the first time in my existence, I think I caved a little bit. I worked scared. I walked scared. I drove scared. Um, you'd get a text message in from certain people and, uh, and you'd break out in goosebumps. So that's not healthy. And, uh, and I didn't think I was working for people. Um, that uh, that knew what worked anymore or, or knew what I did best. And, and at that time, I think I thought I knew better, respectfully. And I think that's been borne out, that I, I did know better, like times 100. I knew what would be better for me. And I knew that when I've had a long run in mornings in Detroit, I had it for six years with my dearly departed friend and colleague, Jamie Samuelson. He passed away. It's my age, and he passed away from colon cancer last summer. Jamie hired me there in Detroit and fought to get me a work visa, and he believed in me, and we were good friends. I'll always owe him, and he died last summer. I can't pay any of it back now, um, 
It's, it's one of the great tragedies of my life. But I looked at it and I said, beyond all the other stuff, um, I got time left in this game. And, and I, I want to do something different that feels important, that makes me feel uh, really engaged. And I, I've been smart. Um, I wanted to be with smart people. Not that the other people weren't, but I wanted to be with smart people doing something new and I wanted to be learning new things. I wanted all that. And I came into these doors with, with humility, with patience. I was very, very confident I can learn. There's different muscles involved when you're doing sports um, than, you know, news talk. There just are. And you got to know the players of the game. You got to build contacts and, and you got to bring an open mind. And I tried to do all that stuff because it, I'll tell you what was great. It was great not to be the smartest person in the room anymore. And that is not a diss. It's not. It's just I did what I did forever. So I'd done it so long. I, I just I just became that. And nothing was new to me anymore. So coming here, I wanted to learn, and I did. And then we hit COVID and a pandemic. And then, you know, oh boy, stuff's really important. What you say is important. How you make people feel is really important. But I also knew there's not going to be anything with my career moving anytime soon. And I watched this company uh, lead, Chorus, and treat employees with, with grace and compassion and understanding and realism. And I thought, well, that feels like home. It's still a business. Changes are a part of any infrastructure. It's a results-oriented business. The show has to perform at a certain level. I've got to bring it. The people on the show who I can't wait to talk about in the days and, and weeks to come, they've got to bring it too. But um, I took care of course. I, I stepped in when they needed me to step in and they took care of me. I was loyal to them. They were loyal to me. And at the end of the day, we're here now and, and I hope we're the best thing for each other for some time. Now, Toronto today. So that's how I'm here. All I can tell you is this. Um, I'm not going to love listening back to this show probably for five or six weeks. I'm expecting some great early moments, but also some choppy waters. You get to experience that ride with us. You get to tell us what you like, what you want more of, what doesn't cut it for you. We'll do the big stories. Um, we'll try and do them in a way that normal people talk about them. Okay? Because I want to be on a show where we talk with you, not at you. With you, not at you. This show is going to be highly interactive. It's going to sound nothing like anything else does right now. Look, I know who the competitors are. I've got respect. You you don't take the you know you don't take the field or the or the basketball court or the ice without knowing who your opponents are. So I know what they do well. Um, I know what they don't. I know um, I know when they will sound tired. We won't. Um, so we'll we'll do our best. I don't think you'll find. Um, I I don't think you'll find that you're you know you're going to be here for a reason, and not somewhere else for a reason. Okay. Um, people ask me about sports. Are we going to do sports? Well, when when it matters, when sports is high up in the news lineup, we'll do it. Um, we're not going to be breaking down regular season games. I've done that. I, I don't have any interest in going back. The, the great thing is the people that have planned the show from the executive level. I mentioned Jeff Story, Larry Gifford. They just they just want me to be me, surround me with great people, bring the depth, and, and that's what we'll do. We're going to do important radio, hilarious radio sometimes, emotional radio, real radio. When we start doing cookie cutter radio, we got to snap back and correct it. We have to. So there's going to be two things that this show will take a lot of pride in. We're going to try to be different. The second is, is just the work ethic. We owe you a really good day's work. You work hard. You drive in. You make a choice to listen. You make a choice to download the podcast. So we better work as hard as you are when you get to your job. And we want to be engaging and insightful and honest. Um, so we're going to try to do those things. We're going to try and shake things up a little bit. I don't know if we're going to kick sand in anybody else's face. Not from a cruel uh, manner, but um, if you're listening to another show regularly, well, we're going to try and convince you not to. Okay? I've been planning this for months. In a way, it took forever. 
<laughs> and in a way, it's been uh, a bullet train since June when I came back in again and was asked to to carry the ball once again. But I think I can make you a promise that we're going to uh, emerge as months go on um, with some insight together, some knowledge together. We're going to climb out of some dark holes together. That's important to me that we uh, we get back what we've lost over the last couple of years and, and doing it together with you, the listener, is of such value to me. So critical. And some mornings you're going to help me more than I'm able to help you. It's true. And some mornings it'll be one of the great honors of my career to return that same favor. So thanks for indulging me here. Thanks for letting me explain things. Um, being here with Dave Bradley, with Rob Trevison, our technical director. Um, I, I've just, it, it's a gift. It's a gift to me to work with these people. I want to be able to tell you about more about our producer soon. And I will. I promise that. Um, but it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, if you've got thoughts on things you want to hear, I'm happy to take your text messages on that. This will be an interactive show. Like I said, this is Toronto's show. This isn't mine. This isn't somebody else's. This isn't choruses. It's not, it's not 640s. It's yours. So you tell us what you want on it, and we'll try and do our best. Okay. Um, Eric Topol in the States put out a great chart about uh, Delta and schools. And obviously, I mean, this is just simple math, right? The most vaccinated states are in great shape. Some of them have been in school, Massachusetts, Connecticut. Um, a lot of them are, are on the eastern seaboard. Um, Dr. Scott Godley, whose clips we play all the time, all the time, has documented that um, you're in a really good place. You're in a very good place. I know that's not going to alleviate all concerns with school. I get that. And we've got to be awfully cautious, mitigate risks where we can. Um, but it's going to be, it's a fascinating time and we got to get back at it today. We do. There's been enough waiting on this. We've got to go. Uh, I always enjoy chatting with our next guest. She's the NDP education critic and MPP for Davenport. Merritt Stiles, our guest on Toronto today on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. It's great to have you on. Thanks for coming on the show. Good morning. Great to be here. Um, let me, yeah, I bring that up about states. I, I find, you know, just like we've had kind of two pandemics when it comes to economic health and equity. I almost feel like we've got two, two school openings. If you're a fully vaccinated household and you've got older kids, to be honest, I think you're feeling pretty good about the circumstances. You want as much normalcy for your older kids as you can get. And then I also understand for elementary school parents whose kids aren't vaccinated yet, um, there's a level of concern um, that does exist. Is, is that a safe statement on my part? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's definitely what I'm hearing. I'm, I'm hearing from a lot of families who are who are more concerned because their kids are younger and so they haven't been vaccinated. Um, I am hearing also, though, from families who have like maybe more vulnerable people in their household, because even if somebody is vaccinated and they're going to school, a teenager, say, uh, they could still bring it back. Right. So there mm -hmm. are still families out there that are experiencing that. And and I think I think that there's a lot of anxiety generally, which is, you know, the other thing I wanted to mention is, you know, a lot of kids out there and I don't know if some of them might even be listening or parents listening right now. Mm. You know, they're feeling anxious for lots of reasons. COVID is one of them, but it's also a big shift to go back to school again. And uh, I know it's not easy for everyone. Yeah, it, it is. And I, uh, I do look at those scenarios and think um, there's a lot that um, I, I thought was missing from the initial provincial announcement. I'd obviously be preaching to the choir there. What were the biggest things that were missing? What are the biggest things that just weren't clarified about the do's and don'ts uh, for, for not just kids, but educators as well? Well, you know, first of all, mandatory vaccination, right? Like that's mm -hmm. missing. And, uh, and obviously, you know, we're talking about for people who are actually eligible. So we know the under 12 can't be vaccinated yet. Uh, but but there, this really should be added to the to the list of vaccines that kids are expected to receive when they're eligible. 
It should be mandatory for everyone who else who works in our schools. And that's that's missing. Um, I also think and I, I know I feel like a bre- broken record, but we, we really do. We should have seen this government move to make classrooms smaller. Uh, we saw that uh, we saw nothing happening really last year. Some boards were able to, to, to pull it off. But this year, I've got, you know, kids going back. Of course, most kids going back to schools of like 30, 28. And there's just no way when you're talking about elementary students that they're going to be able to maintain any kind of distancing in classrooms. So what I'm really worried about is that we are going to see more classroom closures. Uh, We're already starting to see it in some parts of the province where schools have already returned. And I just I think our kids can't take that again. You know, this is this is very unfair. We should have been throwing everything and the kitchen sink at this problem. Merritt Stiles, NDP education critic, our guest. I agree with you about the class sizes from a learning perspective, from a cognitive perspective. I'd ask you this about an airborne virus, though. And this is what a lot of parents have told me. If the virus is airborne and since we know so much more about it and how to mitigate risks, does it matter to them if if a classroom has 25 kids or 22? If you're eating lunch in there, that's where the virus could be. If you're uh, having a science class in there or or gym class when the weather goes bad again, and it always will, that's that's doesn't matter if with an airborne virus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, you know, distancing does still matter. We know that. Um, but yeah, we've learned a lot about how this virus is transmitted in the last like almost two years. And and so ventilation is the other big one. And while we have seen after we all pushed really hard out there, uh, we have seen some move to put uh, to do improve ventilation. Uh, the experts are still telling us it's not enough. Um, we need to see uh, more testing of the air quality exchanges. We need mm-hmm. to see more training. Uh, and we, you know, we're just not meeting the standards of other jurisdictions that are doing better than us, like in New York. And we, we could. There's no reason why we couldn't have done this. Uh, and I got to say, I'm, I'm pretty disappointed. So that those are all ways that we could be improving things. And then there's other things we could be doing again that we know we know from experience are really important, like paid sick days for the parents mm-hmm. of the kids who might get you know, be unwell or themselves are unwell. I think we hope for normalcy when it came to the the months in the fall, and and we hope to take advantage of the outdoor air and the safety of the outdoors. Um, parents that I talked to in my community were were and maybe are still really hopeful that we don't have much information about about just even doing intramural sports outside or running cross country. I get that it's it's different if you're packing kids onto a bus at the elementary school level. What are your hopes for just just the activity? Because as you've seen from some of the data, of course, you know, there's some parents fearful fearful of Delta. That's fine and it's important. But there's parents that are dealing with absolute realities, not fears about their kids' fitness level, their engagement level, their socialization, and whether it's sports, whether it's clubs in high school that can meet safely. Um, those are critical things that we we can't go without another eight, nine months. I totally agree. They're they're absolutely essential. I mean, we tend to kind of think of them as extras or add-ons, but they're not, right? They're absolutely essential to the, the way our kids learn, their health, their mental health and well-being, and that's all taken such a big hit. So I guess what we, we've been talking about and what you know certainly the experts, again, have been calling for is more time outdoors. Now, it's not as easy. Um, you know, talking to teachers and other uh, workers in schools, it's not as easy as just saying, go outside. You've got to prepare for that. You've got to make sure that uh, that there's maybe additional people around, especially with the smaller kids, to make sure that things are go well and everything is safe. 
it's not as easy as just saying, go do that. And I think that's, again, where the government really has missed an opportunity here, because mm. we know, you know, schools, like a lot of parents out there are saying, let us put up a tent. <laughs> you know, let us let us just meet outside as much as possible. That would go a long way to helping us get further into the school year, I think. Um, so that's really important. But again, really important as well for those kids in terms of their support for their learning. I know there's not a policy for this, um, but you and I got to talk about it. There are parents that are going to want to know, and they're going to directly ask those teachers, the teachers of their kids, especially maybe the unvaccinated kids, if that teacher is vaccinated. What are these conversations going to be like? Um, We all know, sadly, we all know how rumors can spread. But once that gets out there and parents start chit-chatting about, is this teacher vaccinated? Is this teacher not? This teacher won't reveal their status. What do we do then? Yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable for sure. But I I do want to make sure people understand that, you know, the vast, vast majority of education workers have been vaccinated. In fact, they raced to get those vaccines. So, you know, I think it's going to be pretty rare that we have uh, workers in our schools who are not vaccinated. Uh, The government talked about uh, now just on Friday, a bit late in the game, but they've talked about uh, requiring anybody who is unvaccinated to have two tests a week. Um, that's certainly, I guess, one answer if you won't really make it mandatory. Um, but I have to say, I think it's, you know, it is uncomfortable. But for generally speaking, our, our education workers have been vaccinated and they are keen to be vaccinated. Um, <clears throat> and they actually are calling for mandatory vaccination. So they're protected as well. Hey, thanks for your advocacy on this. Spending some time with me. Good luck with your own family's transition back to kids Thank being you. in school. I greatly appreciate <laughs> the time. Let's let's check in in a couple weeks again, see how we're all doing. Let's do that. Thanks so much. You got it. Merritt Stiles, NDP education critic. I want to play this uh, if I can. Jason Bradshaw is a high school science teacher. He was on me with me yesterday on Labor Day. Uh, we both working hard on Labor Day. Look at us. Look at me and Jay. So we talked about masks and we talked about again. I'll say it uh, until I'm blue in the face. When we got the kids vaccines, we thought, is this the end of masks in school? Well, I think that would be great. That gets that gets misinterpreted as if we're not going to comply or I don't think the masks matter. Of course, I know they matter. Here's our conversation from yesterday. I remember saying and, and thinking when my kids first got vaccinated, Jason, and they're 15 and 13, they'll be in grade 10 and grade eight. I remember thinking this is maybe the first step, maybe the first step towards normalcy in school. And that can include sports and activities and eventually field trips and all that stuff and dances and going on dates and all that stuff that you did as a teenager and I did as a teenager. And some of that, yes, was not wearing a mask in a classroom. We're not there yet. I get it. Of course, we're going to comply. But when I emote an an element of disappointment that we aren't there, disappointment that we're not, you know, we don't feel close to there. I'm I'm hopeful for the spring. I really am. Um, I, I just get hammered by people that call that that decision selfish or even that emotion selfish. How do you view it? You'd rather teach without one. You'd rather see your students without one. Are you hopeful we get there? Absolutely. I I understand what you're saying completely, Greg. I mean, like when I think back one year ago, and we were were practically in the same place one year ago, except, of course, now we have the vaccines, which are hopefully going to make a huge difference. But one year ago, we were were teaching with masks on. We were talking about cohorting and, and all kinds of stuff like that. And I just remember throughout all of last year, I was thinking to myself, I can do this. It's just for one year. Next year is going to be better. Uh, But here we are. And it's it's a little bit of deja vu. We are still going into a very similar situation. 
Uh, in some ways, there, there are some parts that may be even more difficult or more frightening. For example, we're going to have kids eating unmasked in a cafeteria again, which yes. is uh, it's terrifying to me, honestly. Uh, but I, I agree with you, Greg. We all want to get back to something of a normal sense, and I, I think it can happen. It's going to take some more time. I think right now we do have to have um, uh, measured expectations. Some people feel like, you know, we've got vaccines, things can go back to normal, extracurriculars, no more masks. No, we're mm. not there yet. And it's, it's still going to take some some months, I think, before we can we can talk about that. Yeah, all of that is fair. All of that is fair. And we'll wait this out. But we got to press for this at a certain point in time. I see all these all this talk about the vaccine thresholds moving in this and that. We're getting new information. We're getting new information about natural immunity uh, as we go along here, let alone for kids, let alone for fully vaccinated kids. There has to be an end game. Okay. You got to tell us that something is there in six months that isn't right now. Not otherwise, what's the point? But that's the incentive, right? That's the incentive to keep pushing through this. I'm seeing this this morning in the New York Times. And one of the, if I had a top three list of things that drive me crazy that people say about the pandemic or about um, COVID in general, here's one of them. Tell me, I'm, raise your hand. Not don't keep one hand on the wheel. Don't raise both hands. You're not on a ride. You're not on the behemoth of Canada's Wonderland. Here it is. Here it is. Hey, you know what? You know what? Fully vaccinated people can still spread COVID. Well, well, well yeah, yeah. I, I can get struck by lightning tomorrow. That's also a true statement. Here's Dr. Ashish Jha saying this based on a uh, study of an outbreak among vaccinated and unvaccinated workers at, a, at, the air, at the main airport in Singapore. Here's what he writes. And this is so true. Thank heavens. I wish I could, again, go to the CN Tower and and speak into a bullhorn about this. When we've seen outbreaks like those among the Yankees, meaning uh, the MLB team had an outbreak early in the year in other cases, almost always people are symptomatic when they're spreading. Almost always people are symptomatic when they're spreading. The asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic spread could happen, but we haven't seen it among vaccinated people with any frequency. What's that tell me? Hey, if you're not feeling great and you're vaccinated, stay home. Avoid close contacts, okay? Lock yourself in for a while. Explain it to the boss. But <laughs> you're not walking around vaccinated, fully healthy, uh, pushing out COVID to people. That's not happening. Like, again, there are no absolutes with a global pandemic, but that's something that I would, I, I, you know, I'd bet on. I, I just would wager on it. Love having our next guest on. Uh, love his frank talk about COVID as well. He reminds me a lot of Dr. John, infectious disease physician at Trillium Health Partners in Mississauga. He is Dr. Suman Chakrabarty. First of all, um, I know you were hate watching Novak Djokovic last night because you can't, you just can't tolerate it. Did you make it through any of Andrescu's match? Who knew that would end at two thirty in the morning? Yeah, I, I was watching it. Uh, you, you know, Bianca's a great player. Uh, she put a lot of heart into that, but it was, it was a tough loss. I, it, her first loss in the U.S. Open, actually. But uh, that's it was right. A great match. Yeah, and Layla, Layla, this afternoon. That's going to be fun. I, uh, I'd love to see her take down, uh, take down some more of these uh, tall trees and the and the top seeds and <laughs> exactly. keep this rolling. Uh, she's the new phenom. So when I mentioned that about Doctor Jaw, is that something where you just nod your head and go, I, I, I wish this was better explained. I wish public health authorities would say this. Maybe their their fear is people will let their guard down and be less cautious. But the data is the data, right? 
I, I agree. I think that uh, what happens is there's, I think there's a certain almost salacious fear that we all have that's unspoken that all of a sudden the vaccines are not going to work or at the 11th hour, the rug is going to be pulled out from us. So whenever these stories come out that suggest that they get a leg of their own, they kind of just explode and people assume, hey, the vaccines aren't working. But hey, wait a minute, if you take a look back, yeah, you know, if you are vaccinated, you could spread COVID, but the chances greatly reduce, especially if you don't have symptoms, just like Dr. Jao was mentioning. And we've seen this evidence. It hasn't changed, yet that's what the story is. And I think a lot of this has led to vaccine hesitancy or has made existing hesitancy worse. Yeah, I, I, I struggle because now and then, of course, there's a story. I, I had a conversation with somebody that I randomly bumped into that I, I hadn't heard from in ages. And, you know, they're like, uh, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm back at the gym. And they're like, oh, I heard gyms aren't safe. That thing happened in Quebec in February. And I'm like, yes, you like I'm thinking to myself, you realize what you're telling me. You're telling me about one incident in a sweat box with a bunch of spin bikes where protocols aren't being followed here. And the vast majority of us with gyms being open now for what, two months have gone back without incident. Like like you got to play the numbers sometimes. I agree. And the one thing we have to think about is what would have happened back in 2018 before the pandemic? You know, you wouldn't have thought twice about going to the gym, uh, about getting something like influenza, respiratory viruses. <laughs> Long when COVID's gone, or at least when it's not to this extent, this is still going to be there. So we just have to remember that uh, the risk is not zero, that's for sure. But now that if you're vaccinated, if even if you are uh, exposed to COVID, which all of us will likely be in the, in the course of the next one to two years, the chance of you being sick enough to be hospitalized is almost non-existent, especially if you're young and healthy. So I just think that these things really need to be considered because a lot of fear-mongering has kind of been set into our mindset over the last year and a half. Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, our guest. So um, I talked to you yesterday about uh, what Eric Topol put out, who's been just fantastic on this. And there's a large body of data, um, and, and this is what he wrote. He wrote, based on a large body of data, I lobbied the CDC this week to count confirmed prior COVID as equivalent to one dose of vaccine, which would reduce waste, unnecessary side effects, also true, and provide the same access to activities as two doses, no COVID. I got nowhere. This has been a struggle. Like people are running into brick walls, but the data is showing us in other countries and and it was seen as almost bonkers or almost anti-vax stuff in March and April, doctors were telling some patients, look, if you've already had COVID and recovered from it, you're well on your way to building antibodies and maybe you only need the one dose of vaccine. Now we're getting to the reality of that. Yeah. And, you know, this is something that, again, that many of these uh, aspects of the pandemic that in infectious diseases we've been talking about, yeah, this makes sense. For example, mixing vaccines, all of these things are uh, things that have been uh, discussed with other infections. But then again, these stories take a bit of a life of their own. And I agree with you that natural immunity, of course, has to be considered. But it did become a bit of a taboo topic over mm -hmm. the last few months. But yeah, I do think that the evidence shows that uh, uh, you know one dose would be sufficient. In some cases, maybe you might not even need a dose. But the point that I'm trying to make is that natural immunity is certainly something. Clearly, it's there. Uh, it should be considered, and we can have a lot more vaccine to go around if we're not giving everybody two doses that doesn't necessarily need it. It's a weird one, too, because I, I feel like we're, we're busting a bunch of myths, but I, I, I document Israel as well. And there's been a lot of people looking. Israel's cases are growing and cases there in some respects. We were all complimenting how quickly they got vaccinated. But 
our cases are leading to, yes, some hospitalizations. But here's what they did. And, and a doctor named Monica Gandhi laid this out on a podcast I heard over the weekend. Israel did second doses after three weeks. Way, way, way too soon. Like we were worried in Ontario about waiting four months and then we minimized that and got the time closer, especially for our older, more vulnerable people. That was the whole point. But Dr. Chakrabarty, Israel went too fast, it looks like. And after three weeks, um, there wasn't the buildup and they're paying the price for it now. Well, possibly. I always say one thing. It is true that in vaccines, it's often better to have vaccines a bit further apart out. There's a max, of course, but uh, just to give an example, hepatitis A vaccine is two doses, and it's, the range is anywhere from six months to 36 months. So spacing out doses is something that we have done with vaccines forever. Uh, that said, Israel is a bit of a black box to me. All of the data coming out of there is not really data. It's, you know, slides from presentations. It's kind of half this. We haven't actually seen the raw data. And I'm not necessarily sure what we're seeing there is, is a, you know, a huge wave because when you're looking at some of the, the data, the hospitalizations, that, yeah, the people are going in, but they're coming right out. Mm. The deaths are about the same. So, you know, I, I'm not really sure what's happening there with a the third dose. I think they acted on it a bit too quickly. And uh, the data, again, is very murky. Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, I guess. Got one more for you, but I, w- I want you to be able to stretch it out. I'm watching. So there you and I are watching the U.S. Open last night. Big crowds, uh, no masks, people in, in New York City. I watched a bit of the Ticats game yesterday uh, where you've got, a, you know, you've got a lot of people at Tim Hortons Field outdoors. And now we have a, f- a, a vaccination policy, which is a good thing where you got to show proof of vaccination or show proof of a negative test. So I wrestle with this, right? I, I go, I don't know what's right or wrong. And, and I think we've all wrestled with what am I ready to go back and do? What am I not? And and we all want to go at our own pace at this. Schools are another factor that's coming here. How do you view where we're at and, and what we're doing maybe in Canada compared to the United States? Uh, clearly, uh, it, there's two Americas right now. There's highly vaccinated states like Massachusetts and Connecticut um, and uh, and even New York State where things are going well. And there's obviously places where it's, it's a horror movie in, in Louisiana and Florida. I agree with you. And I think that one thing to remember is that the, the pandemic is still here. It certainly hasn't gone away. Delta is a different beast. We have to uh, respect that. At the same time, we have this intervention that, despite what we're hearing, works very well when you're fully vaccinated, even against Delta. There are issues, pockets of unvaccinated individuals. But at some point, that's going to uh, be there. And I think that uh, uh, staying in suspended animation uh, for the next year and a half is just not going to work. Lockdowns are not really a viable strategy at this point. So we have to at some point think, look, we're going to get infections. We're going to have to do what we can. Mm. I think the vaccine passport has high amounts of transmission help. It should be removed as soon as that's gone. We just have to look at this in a different perspective than we have the last year and a half. We're not going to be getting rid of this thing. We're going to have to live with it, but I think we can do so in safe, targeted ways. Great stuff. Uh, thanks for bringing what you bring to the listeners and, and the show. I greatly appreciate it, Dr. Chakrabarty. Have a great day. In- infectious diseases physician Dr. Suman Chakrabarty. Uh, our next guest, chief political correspondent for Global News. Uh, he's been killing it on the campaign trail. Thirteen days left, um, and we don't expect him to stop. I'm seeing, uh, I'm seeing these tweets as well uh, from someone throwing rocks at the prime minister's head should equal jail time. If not, you're daring people to go further. And that's where I want to start, uh, David Aiken. I, I, I don't know where this goes. We've never seen anything quite like it. People have been angry at sitting prime ministers and sitting political parties and sitting premiers before. But um, your political vent, I've watched it too. You haven't seen anything like this, have you? I really haven't. There are some old timers in the parliamentary press gallery here in Ottawa who remember the last days of Brian Mulroney when people were 
angry and you'd get mobs out in his motorcade and people would spit at his car. Um, I've been out on the road for a couple of weeks with the Liberal Tour and, and it just gets um, angrier, uh, louder, more obscene. Uh, it's anti-vaccine protesters. Uh, we try to talk to them, and a lot of times they, they don't want to talk to us. We do our best. We try to be polite. They're not polite. They're, uh, as mm-hmm. you say, obscene, rude. And what kills me is, you know, you'll have some woman screaming absolute obscenities um, at the prime minister of the country, the liberal leader of the country, and she's got, like, her four-year-old and her six-year-old standing right beside her. Not really clear about the parenting priorities that someone like that is, is setting. The other thing we're seeing, we saw this yesterday in uh, London, Ontario, where these, uh, you know, gravel, small rocks were hurled mm-hmm. at the Prime Minister's bus by somebody. Lots of people wearing People's Party of Canada shirts and uh, hats. This is the PPC led by Maxime Bernier, the former Conservative, who is grumpy and bitter about things, I guess. They're polling nationally between 5 and 7%. I don't think that's enough to win a seat. But there's a significant number of people out there, and they are taking their cue from Bernier, whose social media feeds absolutely whips them up. Yesterday, Bernier was in Manitoba in violation of public health orders. He's supposed to, to quarantine for 14 days. He did not. He showed up, held a rally in a conservative riding in the southeast part of Manitoba. A few hundred people, all unmasked, don't care. And uh, that's what he's about, and he's whipping up this this group. Trudeau would like to, you to think it's Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives. I've seen no evidence of that. Mm-hmm. I look hard. I try to get that sense. Um, but the, the Trudeau and, and the Liberals will say, well, you know, before the campaign, um, his opponents were, were trying to whip up some stuff. It's one thing to be angry at the PM. Knock yourself out. Be angry at O'Toole. Yeah. Be angry at saying, I don't care. Go ahead and, and show up and, you know, yell and scream. But, yeah, when you start throwing rocks at people, you've, you've crossed a line, and, um, and that's what happened yesterday. I want to get to uh, what happened in Calgary, which you made note of this morning on, on your Twitter feed. Um, but to bring up the PPC, John Wright's been a pollster forever, and he noted this yesterday, that they were tracking at 1% last election, David. Now it's 7%. That might even be something that costs the Conservative Party seats. Maybe it even costs them. Uh, maybe it costs Aaron O'Toole becoming prime minister. But you're right for how we dismiss them after 2019. Well, that's a joke. It's not going to they're not a political factor. It's not going to happen again. They can't influence much like it or not for better or some would say worse. That's changed yeah, two I, years later. I, I got a different view about than that than John. Um, I don't know if it actually it will hurt the conservatives because one of the reasons the People's Party of Canada exists because Aaron O'Toole has moved the conservative party to the center. And those on the extreme right didn't like that, and away they went. And when he moved the part of the center, for every PPC voter he's lost, he has picked up people in the center. And mm-hmm. that's the sweet spot to win government. And we look at the polls right now. Aaron O'Toole was down by, what, 8, 9, 10 points in the national poll when this thing started? He's leading. So, you know, say what you want about uh, the PPC could hurt O'Toole's chances, maybe. But that move that O'Toole has made to essentially desert the crazies in his party who don't believe in vaccines has helped him because he's moved to the center. And that means he's going to be picking up suburban voters in important ridings in York region and Peel region, you name it. So, um, so, you know, we'll have to wait and dissect things after the result. But you mentioned that Calgary center candidate and you're right. I want to zero in on that because Let's, when yeah. I was with the, the, the Trudeau campaign last week and when all, I'm, I'm with the O'Toole campaign this week, I've been out with the uh, Jagmeet Singh. When we go around the country, I asked the candidates, I said, you know, all this this hate, this anger, when you knock on doors, do you feel unsafe? And by and large, the answer is no. But here we had a situation where the liberal candidate in Calgary Centre, a woman named Sabrina Grover, 
Um, she had two of her volunteers just out knocking doors. Hi, I'm working for Sabrina. Can I give you a pamphlet? And people started spitting at them and kicking them. And again, that like this is volunteers. I mean, give me a break. I did talk to one liberal candidate in Kitchener once. He said his volunteers weren't getting it. But if he showed up at the door, then as the incumbent MP, yeah, he might get a little people get in his face a bit. Okay. But I mean, I just don't understand this, that you think you're going to you think you're going to make your point by spitting and kicking and throwing rocks. Really? That's going to influence people. That's what we want to show our kids. I, I don't understand it. And I think the two slogans, well, one from the pandemic, we're all in this together. Uh, clearly, uh, it's not been a one size all fits pandemic. And the second one that comes up politically, uh, uh, David, is. Uh, is is just the idea that, well, uh, we're better than this. This isn't who Canada is. If we keep showing it over and over again, clearly there are fringes and pockets where this is exactly who some people are. It's exactly that. Yeah, and again, what we'll see on Election Day, we'll wonder if this pe- these people mm-hmm. who are telling pollsters they'll vote PPC, will they show up at the polls? That's still an open question. There was only a quarter million people who voted PPC last time out of 16 million votes. So uh, let's see what the next couple of weeks brings. I know you're tight for time. Give me 30 seconds on if you think Justin Trudeau could, you know, get in the DeLorean with Marty McFly, go back four weeks. Would this election still be like I, I'm hearing? I, I get messages from uh, and I don't want to reveal their identity. I'm sure you hear from MPs also um, one specific rookie MP, he or she. They like the, the text to me is, Dave, that we didn't want this. We didn't want to go knocking on doors 23 months ago. We're new. We wanted to serve our electorate. We want to serve our constituents. Um, and, and they've pushed us right back out there in seeking a majority. And it wouldn't have changed that candidate's life one way or the other. Yeah, I think you're going to see that in the debates this week. That is the question Justin Trudeau still cannot answer. Why the heck are we doing this election while the fourth wave pandemic is is picking up steam? Parents are worried about their kids going to school. And what the heck are you doing? So let's see if he's got an answer for that. But uh, he, he thought he'd walk sleepwalk to a majority. I don't think he gets a majority. I think he's uh, lucky to win minority. Keep an eye for him uh, at 530 and 6 on uh, Global News. Thanks very much, David Aiken. Appreciate okay, it. Thanks. Bye. Hopefully lots of good stuff there. Meat on the bone, as they say. Really appreciate you checking out the podcast for Toronto today. Our debut edition of Tuesday, September the 7th. Back on the air live tomorrow between 530 and 9. We've got some things coming we think you'll be really excited by. Can't throw them all um, and have them stick to the wall at once. So be patient with the show. I certainly am. We hope you are as well. But we're going to give you what you need and arm you with information, entertain you as well as the mornings and the weeks move on into late September. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you on Wednesday.